0: Hello everybody and welcome to another special edition of Infection Control Matters. Brett, Phil and I are continuing our theme of talking to people from around the world about transmission based precautions and whether they need to change or not. So without further ado, let's crack on and it's over to Phil Russo.
1: I'd like to now introduce uh, Maria Gerator. Maria is very well-known in Australian infection prevention control circles and is currently the Nurse Unit Manager of the Infection Prevention Control Unit, Central Adelaide Local Health Network in South Australia. So welcome, Maria.
2: Thank you, Bill. Uh,
1: As you know, Maria, we're going to have a quick-fire session on PPE. Uh, So the first question I just wanted to pose to you is do you think the current contact droplet airborne transmission terminology and the way we subsequently plan and deliver IPC precautions needs to change?
2: Well, we know that all respiratory viruses now are transmitted via aerosols. Um, We know that um, they're spread also via different ways um, and ventilation does play a part in it. Um, There is um, fomite transmission as well. I do think that we do need to change our, our precautions and I do believe we need to shift away from contact precautions. I think contact precautions really is standard precautions and that maybe we need to go, we, maybe we need to change it to a different title and, and, and have two tiers because standard precautions, I think MRSA, BRE, you know, they could be managed very well in an open bay area, standard precautions. But when you have something like... Candida auris or um, CPE, that's where your highest risk is. And I think, and that's where those precautions really need to be very tight and schmick on those patients. So I do think that when we use the term contact precautions, I think people are very blase with that now. um, And I think that needs to shift and we need to change that. When it comes to um, droplet precautions and airborne, I think that should, again, become one precaution and it should be uh, maybe called uh, relaunch it as uh, respiratory precautions and maybe have, again, that tier one, tier two. So your tier one is, you know, N95 mask, eye protection, plus or minus face shield, gown and gloves, although I'd love to get rid of gloves um, and just have gowns um, and get everyone doing hand hygiene um, because I still think gloves are blood and body fluid exposure um, and we need to step away from that. That's just my thought. And then the second tier would be your airborne precautions, which would be your N95 mask and protection. So I'm thinking about TB because there are, you know, we know that for um, disseminating shingles, uh, you know, chicken pox, you know, um, we have to use that high level of precautions with gown and gloves, but for TB we don't need to. So I really think that maybe we have an opportunity now to really revisit our precautions and and really look at whether the whether we need to change the terminology need to re-educate the staff around what that actually means and then that might actually then create capacity for staff to start to risk assess and go okay I've got someone on that's got diarrhea so that patient might need that next level of precaution as opposed to you know, suddenly we've got to think about whether it is someone that needs contact precautions or doesn't. You know, is it part of standard precautions? And then we need to shift that level of thinking. The other thing, too, is that, you know, with the, with our antibiotic resistance, with um, the increasing antibiotic resistance and it's coming back, you know, and we've got polio again, you know, which we thought we got rid of. We, we do need to look at how we use our precautions. Um, you know, they're a finite supply. We found that with COVID, you know, that we had a finite supply of it and we need to use it judiciously. Um, and also that we need to create the capacity for our rooms to be our single rooms where, you know, we've got facilities that don't have 100% single rooms. You know, I'm fortunate that one of my hospitals, we have 100% single rooms, but other hospital, our other hospitals we don't. So we need to start thinking about, if we change our precautions and change the level of precautions that we use, what are going to be the risks to the patients that are in that area? Um, if patient, if staff are implementing standard precautions? Um, and then are we then creating capacity for our higher risk patients, those that have got Candida Auris and CPE, getting a single room, which is where we want them to be, as opposed to being in, you know, being shoved into a four-bed bay because we've got nowhere else to put them? And that's not where we want to put them. Um, And I know with COVID, you know, COVID has taken precedence. You know, the COVID patient takes precedence in the room, but then we've got a TV patient, you know, so the TV patient really needs to go in that room. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a good point about the single rooms, and I've been fortunate enough to visit your hospital and was very impressed uh, with all those single rooms as well. But, uh, you know, we're talking, I guess we also have to think about the implications for Residential aged care facilities who are never going to have that sort of luxury um, and uh, and healthcare setting because they are they are residences. So oh. lots to lots to um, consider in the future. It's going to be a big change. What you're proposing, I, I don't disagree with anything that you said, but it it will take a big big shift in in uh, in our uh, practice and policy, won't it? Yeah, it
2: will. And even like interestingly, you know, like um, I remember. I remember, you know, with mental health, you know, mental health is the same. Their patients don't stay in their rooms. They come out of their rooms. So, you know, like which patients we want to go into a room and stay in a room, you know, and which ones don't we? Um, So I think that we have an opportunity to change. If I could change one thing, that would be to get rid of gloves completely um, and only re-educate people about putting them on only if there's a risk of blood and body fluid exposure. But I do think we have an opportunity now nationally as well as internationally to start really looking at what precautions we need and what PPE do we need and who do we need to place in a single room.
1: Sure. Well, great uh, great thoughts, Maria. I appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, sharing your experience and your, uh, you what you think the direction should be in the future. And um, good to see you again.
2: Thank you. Thank you again.
0: Hello everybody, it's Martin Keelan here again at the HISS meeting and I bumped into Dr Elgil Lingus from the University Hospitals of Oslo who I'm going to be asking the same question we have been asking a number of other people which is, do you think the current contact droplet and airborne precautions terminology and the transmission routes we talk about all the time are actually fit for purpose uh, or do they need to change?
3: Yeah, I definitely think they need to be changed Uh, both the concept and the wording Hmm. and especially this... uh, Question about airborne droplets and what is what and the terminology. I've always been uh, opposed to this concept of aerosol generating procedures, which is connecting it to I mean, a procedure. Mm. Whereas coughing or speaking or laughing or singing obviously is not considered an aer- aerosol generating procedure and it's exactly the same way of spreading droplets. Mm. So I think that is a, a wrong. Uh, wrong approach um, and that has created quite a lot of problems, I think, during the pandemic
0: okay, so if things do need to change, have you got any about ideas about how they could change and where we should go with it then
3: Yes, I think that uh, i mean the the concept of transmission via the air mm. so, particle or something, it's moved through the air and it moves along some distance and to try to let people understand that it's not either droplets or airborne, but it's usually a combination. Yeah. And depending on the situation, on the microorganism, uh, the environment, the temperature, the humidity, everything, you will have different results. Mm. And to try to teach healthcare workers, especially, this concept more than more than um, the um, the square you, you should use a mask or not yeah for example and droplets and, and I also mean, I mean I, I, that uh, this distance discussion one meter two meter one and a half meter yeah six feet whatever is of course a relative issue I mean if you cause a, a cough and spit I can probably manage to spit a few meters with the run-up. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all... But, of course, in, in practice, when healthcare workers need to do it, they, they have to have some guidance. Yeah. And um, not to make it too complicated for them. But I think all the time during the pandemic, especially, and, in fact, I, I've really felt the déjà vu from the swine flu because we had exactly the same discussion that time. Yeah. And now we started again.
0: Ten years later. Yeah. And SARS-1 and MERS as well.
3: Yeah. So, hmm.
0: I mean, we have to convince ourselves first, though, and be clear in our own minds before we try and sell this to other people. Though, I, agree. I,
3: mean? I agree. I and, agree. And especially during the pandemic, I thought that the um, authoritative, like WHO, CDC and others, they moved, they, they moved the goalposts, more or less. I mean, in the beginning, it was only droplets. Yeah. On their way, it was more and more uh, also airborne in the sense that it's... Uh, but, but they didn't say it clearly. No. Or loudly. Or loudly. <laughs> and I, I don't know why. Maybe it was an embarrassment. I don't know. But anyway, that was, I think... The, uh, one year out, out in the pandemic, the transmission obviously was not the same as the first year. And although the virus changed mm. and transmission increased, um, then uh, the virus is the same. Yeah. And when they speak about... Although so they, we speak about increased transmission rate that may either be you require a, lesser, a lower dose or that maybe airborne transmission plays a relatively bigger part um, I don't know hmm. but it's uh, it is not easy no. and I'm, I'm lucky I'm not in the, the shoes of WHO by the
0: way no. <laughs> Now I think we're all feeling quite lucky about that. Okay, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate you spending a few minutes with me. Thank you.
4: Well, hello, everybody. Brett Mitchell here, and today I've got Professor Ramon Chaban. And Ramon is the clinical chair of Communicable Diseases Control and Infection Prevention, and has another role as Director of Infection Prevention and Disease Control, joint appointments at University of Sydney and Western Sydney at Local Health District. Ramon, thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. Uh, look, we're going to get straight into it. We're talking about droplet airborne contact precautions. Do you think mm. the the terminology of these needs to change in infection prevention control, Ramon?
5: Yeah, look, Brett, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think COVID-19 has highlighted uh, a couple of things around this sort of definitions of contact, droplet and airborne. The first thing I think I would say is that um, it's given me and us a pause to think about what we think those words actually mean. Um, if I think back to the beginning of my training um, and what I've learned throughout, I always viewed these three uh, classifications as a spectrum or on a spectrum of how diseases are spread, uh, and that goes to the mode of transmission as opposed to, um, you know, sort of siloed definitions where there were discrete markers of what one was and what uh, and what uh, another one wasn't. And I think what um, has happened is I think the debate around these three classifications has highlighted our assumptions about what they actually do mean. Um, as you and our, uh, our listeners would well know, uh, there are particular diseases that are spread by more than one mode and... Um, when we have a new pathogen like SARS-CoV-2 with the science that was emerging at the time about what was or wasn't droplet um, and what is or isn't airborne sort of fed into that um, machinery of discussion and debate. So I think certainly, you know, as as new diseases uh, emerge and other evidence is is found, we should definitely give um, thought to revising our uh, thinking around these concepts. But for me, it's more about, well, what do we think these words actually mean mm. and what are, the, what are the assumptions that um, we perhaps rely on um, mm. to articulate what that means? Do you think that, um, yeah. um, maybe it's a
4: loaded question, but do you think that sometimes we've been talking about the same thing but just different disciplines using different terminology? Do you think that's been part of the confusion about all this?
5: unquestionably and if I you know I've been thinking about this a bit lately if I look at some of the literature the, um guidelines you know I've noticed that it, there's been a new sort of collection of words put together so once upon a time it was droplet now it becomes droplet slash aerosol aerosol slash airborne the words are used interchangeably um, which I think reflects some of the confusion around what is recent around the mode of transmission and that's sort of unhelpful and that to me signals um, first of all, what do we think these words mean? how do we explain what they mean in terms of how diseases are spread and it goes back to the mode of transmission you know we know for example how measles is 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 or isn't spread and we know how norovirus is or isn't spread that's because those those two particular pathogens they're quite different in terms of their mode of trans, of transmission but for other infections that are respiratory based, (laughs) um, there's a span of contact droplet and airborne. So I think having these categories um, um, can, or using these categories in a way that's um, discrete can be and is artificial.
4: So do you think, or have you got any ideas on what could work better or what we need to move to in this space?
5: Well, I think it's about, among other things, going back to understanding how the diseases are spread more you know, more broadly and having a good understanding of the pathogenesis of the organism because um, not all viruses are the same. You know, SARS-1 and SARS-2 are, are different viruses. They spread in different kinds of ways. And that's the first thing that's, I think, really important. Secondly, then, is to understand the, the evidence around transmission of these diseases as it's currently known. You know, the evidence around um, how some of these diseases are spread Uh, uh, certainly in the recent times is based on small-numbered studies in um, contexts that have very many limitations or very many confounding biases, which do not represent what some people talk about as being the real world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, I think uh, some folks have been grasping on or sticking to studies done um, in recent times and not thought about how things have moved on. Certainly with COVID-19, the variants of concern and the new variants as they've emerged, there is certainly evidence that demonstrates different modes of transmission. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, we throw the baby out with the bathwater and think all of a sudden it's now, now, you know, wholly airborne. Mm -hmm. And so this goes to our understanding of these concepts and how we – importantly communicate them <laughs> to others and I think that's really very important trying to explain to lay people the difference between droplet and airborne it's not particularly easy if you're going to stick with the size of the droplet as one criteria which is you know what many folks have anchored to as a way to define droplet versus airborne when in actual fact it's much more nuanced than that um, as you would well know.
4: Plenty of work to do in this area, isn't there? So, uh, yes.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's all about. uh, I think it's all about our our understanding of um, these concepts and Mm. um, how we can communicate them with them to others.
4: Look, Ramon, thanks so much for your insights and thoughts, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Brett. Take care. Thanks, everybody.
0: So, uh, hello, everybody. It's Martin Keenan again from the Hiss Conference, and this time I've managed to buttonhole. Dr. Elaine and green from Great Ormond Street Hospital, who's a consultant clinical scientist, but also the infection control Doctor. So I'm going to ask you the same question that I've asked everybody else, which is, do you think the current contact droplet and airborne transmission terminology and way, the way we plan and deliver IBC precautions needs to change? And if so, why? Or if not, why not?
6: I think it's a really complex issue, actually. I'm going to start by that, which pleases Good nobody. I yeah. know, um, because I think that... There are two aspects of this, right? There is the science and the technical aspect, which obviously I'm a clinical scientist and I love and I really enjoy that deep dive. And then there's the awareness of what is practically going to make sense to people on the wards. And I think that those two things are incredibly important and you have to find a way for them to live in the same space. And I feel like we are too driven to put stuff into specific boxes without considering the scenario in which that box exists. And people need to make decisions based on risk, not necessarily based on labels. And so we need to work out where our risk management lies. So for me, there are definitely aerosols produced when someone coughs with SARS-CoV-2, right? But if most of the risk is linked to droplet, actually, where do we put our energy? If we have finite resources and we're looking at compliance of a member of staff are they going to actually wear an FFP3 mask appropriately for eight hours? If they're not going to, actually where do we sit with getting into a situation where compliance works mm. based in a clinical scenario? And I feel like that's the discussion that people are a bit scared to have right now. So we're all focusing on the stuff that gives me joy in terms of technical sizes and labels, and we're not putting that much effort into how that works translates into clinical practice so i think there needs to be a revisitation of actually more how we think than what we label things as and i think when we then revisit that thought approach then we might come up with terms that are more appropriate rather than having lovely little black boxes that we think we can put one size fits all in because we all know that a patient with a skin-borne asinitobacter may have different risks to a patient who's colonised with a highly resistant aclebsiella in the respiratory secretions? Yeah. Actually, how do we think about those things? Because both of those would currently be contact precautions. They're not airborne. And that may be completely appropriate. That may be completely fine. But we have to think about things differently, but in a way that's still going to be manageable by clinical areas. Because if you make it too fuzzy if you make it too complex you're not going to get compliance and people won't understand what you're asking them to do and both of those things lead to failure.
0: Have you got any ideas as to what might work then and how we could think about it in a way that would be accessible by the average healthcare worker?
6: So I don't know actually if you need to think more of a ratings-based system. So in some ways at the moment when something comes through to me if I look at it and it's different I will have specific conversations with the wards about the fact that they may need to use respiratory precautions for this despite the fact that they would normally use contact because there's a patient involved it's not just the organism and so how we put in that patient. Information into that, I think, is a fairly complex algorithm that we're all still working out. If this stuff was simple, we would have solved it. Yeah, right. I think actually, how you communicate requires us to engage better with our stakeholders in a way that we don't necessarily do. So, I have some thoughts, I'm not necessarily sure they're formulated enough with our stakeholders to be able to turn around and say, This is what I think we should all do. But, I think that it's both giving that patient context as well as the organism information and putting those things together. And so you may still end up with a scenario where I say, this is airborne, but it's airborne based on those two things rather than just the organism-based approach. Um, And so you may use the same labels because actually in terms of the person on the unit actually engaging in the activity and wearing the PPE you're still doing the same things practically in the space but that actually that risk assessment behind that is more complex and that's owned by us as clinical teams in terms of how we convey that information.
0: Okay well thanks very much indeed for your time interesting it's going to be an interesting couple of years I think as people start to consider where to go next and in the, in the light of increasing information but also new knowledge I think that And
6: nuance is key.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure.
6: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: So, hello, everybody. It's Martin Kinnan again from the HISS conference, and I'm buttoning holding people, as as we know. I've just managed to grab hold of Dr Christine Peters, who works for Greater Glasgow Health Board, and I'm going to ask you, Christine, the same question I've been asking everybody else, which is: Is the current thinking about droplet, aerosol, contact fit for purpose going forward? does it need to change and if so why do you think it needs to change?
7: It definitely needs to change I think in my mind there's no question at all that it's a paradigm that's um, outdated it's lost its utility and looking at it closely what Covid's done over the last two years has shone a light on it and I think we realise that it's it's not been right for a long time so there's a lot of good studies that have come out that have demonstrated that each of those three categories, the way we're using them, is pretty nonsensical. It doesn't fit with the underlying mechanistic, physics, and and neither does it help with mitigations. Um, and it's failed us in this pandemic. So, for example, um, the difference between airborne and droplets, it, we've been using it to differentiate between things like TB and having positive pressure and negative pressure rooms and having to wear FFP3s and and not realising that the same particles close up to a person can be inhaled. Mm -hmm. So in fact, it's messing together two different ways of of transmitting. And then droplets, we had this idea that uh, respiratory viruses would just come out of somebody's mouth and then drop within two metres. And if you just moved a little over two meters, you were going to be safe. And that, that's clearly not the case. Uh, there's such a range of, of sizes of aerosols. Um, and then wind mass, wind direction matters, evaporation matters. Um, and all all the science that's now available in, in, in really easy to read documents. Um, I think it's impossible to say we've got to stick rigidly with this old, outdated and always mistaken way of looking at transmission I think we we do need to be a little bit careful moving forward not to just focus on uh, respiratory viruses because the same holds true for for any pathogen and we have to I think re-examine it It was very endearing to have three different ways and then you know you know if it's contact you get your gloves on and you get your pinny on We need to start again, I think, and and it's going to take a bit of thought and a lot of consensus and a lot of hard work ahead of us um, to think about where the source is, so be that another human or be it the environment, so that would bring together a lot of work that's now available as well about, you know, taps and sinks and all of that, perhaps aerosolisation from showers moving in, so that's where ventilation comes in, so where are the pathogens coming from? And then, how are they uh, moving through space and and time? I guess to hit the the host or the susceptible host. And then, what's the portal of entry? And then, where in that uh, in those three categories can you do an intervention? Um, and that we don't have the data for all of that for all pathogens, but. We, if we look at the data, we do have with a different light, looking not being constrained by this. You know, everything's got to fit into three columns. And we prefer it to fit into only one column and not two columns, because then it makes it easy for everybody. We've got to get rid of that whole concept.
0: Okay. Have you I got think. any ideas of what might replace it, your own yeah. personal feeling?
7: Well, there is that paper, isn't there, where um, Lindsay Marr and um, I think it's Julian Tang, they, they've thought about spree inhalation and touch as three replacements and that would fit with the physics um, of uh, and do away with this whole close contact idea because Mm -hmm. to be honest we don't even know what that actually means there was never a real definition I thought in my head it meant touching but actually a lot of the stuff about COVID is close contact means conversational distance really doesn't it so it's not like you're going around licking other people it's you're breathing over them or you're coughing and splattering over them so I think that's quite useful but when I was thinking about that I thought that's very relevant for respiratory viruses I'm with it for that but then what about other scenarios and you've got blood you've got uh, foodborne airborne that's actually come from environmental so I don't have an off the peg solution at the moment I I don't think anyone does (laughs) (laughs) but nobody does but I think we've got to move the first step is to say it's wrong sorry it may be served a purpose um you know we we all believed in it for a long time i including myself but we educate ourselves in infection control bring on board those guys who've been studying this for years and years done the physics doing the ventilation stuff um and and not be so um territorial about Pathogens, you know, pathogens move in the world of physics and they, they obey physics laws as well as biology. Yeah. So we need to just step back a bit, get other experts in, and then also get the people who are day to day on the wards, um to see how will we make this framework useful for them because i think you get insights from people who 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 are doing the work on awards as well so i think it's an exciting prospect but i don't have the answers i definitely the one thing i know is let's get rid of let's get rid of that whole droplet aerosol contact nobody knows what any of that actually means
5: so
0: there you go (laughs) okay thanks very much really appreciate your time thank
7: you that's fine
0: Well, that's it for this special episode of Infection Control Matters. We'll be back in a few days with another collection of recordings from people who've given us their time and their opinions on this very important subject. Until then, catch you later, and thanks very much for listening.